Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkman and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 18, where I meet security and defence analyst Declan Power. He takes me through a deep look at what Ireland's defence capability actually is, what it needs to be, and what sort of threats we're now facing, from hybrid and cyber attacks to Russian jets poking at us as a Western weak spot. It's a huge subject, and we had a long chat. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like Frankie Sheehan, Theresa Mannion, Ivan Yates, Geraldine Herbert, Henry McKean and others. It's all there on SeniorTimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkman and you can email me at connorfaulkman at gmail.com. But now let's go and meet Declan. Hopefully the audio quality is good. If you hear any interference, let's just put it down to the Russians listening in. So, hello, Declan Power. It is uh, terrific to meet you. We, we may have met before. I think we've certainly uh, been on the same radio stations and know some of the same people. We have. I think perhaps we, we met in the corridors of RT, going in and out of panel discussions. Maybe we're, we were tag-teaming on uh, maybe Pat Kenny or Claire Byrne or something. Cause I something of that sort. The world is nodding. Yeah. And, and they'll be asking me about stuff that um, is not the world's most thrilling. You know, is the airport roundabout functioning correctly? Or how many years do we have a metro? Um, whereas in your capacity as security and defence analyst, this is the exciting stuff. This is the, you know, part of the small boy in me is is, is already reading spy novels. Um, but you do talk about that material. So, you know, when defence and security analyst, you tend to be talking about the geopolitical situation and where Ireland fits into it. Um, what brought you to that? You were a military man originally. Yes, I, I was. Yeah, I served in the defence forces for approximately 13 years thereabouts and uh, had a had a, you know, a, an unusual uh, career path compared to compared to many. Uh, it didn't follow uh, quite the normal routines. Uh, I was always interested in, in the military life and got the chance to study and train across a number of areas. Had you that in your family, Declan? Mm-hmm. Often no, not as such. Both my grandfathers were uh, founder members of Garda Síochána and one of them had served uh, in the old IRA and then had served for a period in the Free State Army and then the, the, most of his career then he was a Garda Sergeant. Um, and I had a granduncle who served uh, in an Irish regiment in the First World War, was killed in action on the Somme. Um, I actually had a, another granduncle, I believe, who flew in the Battle of Britain, I'm told. That, oh, wow. Um, and but did, certainly he served in the RAF during the war. And um, did you know this as part of your family history or is it something that research uncovered for you later on? It was stuff. I had a huge brawl for military history uh, yeah. as a child. Uh, just There was something I got into uh, at, a, at an early stage. Uh, I read widely on it and I was a complete pain in the ass I would say at family events as a child because anybody over a certain age I would happily sit down with them I would buttonhole them I would want to know were they alive uh, during World War 2 that would be one of my starter questions and uh, what exactly did they get up to and thankfully an awful lot of them indulged me and were happy to talk from, from my um, granduncle who you know was a farmer for all his career and talked about his time in the LDF uh, during the second world war which 
I, I was fascinated with. Um, but it was through that that I heard then, because a lot of this stuff wasn't talked about widely in families. And so I learned about you know the, the granduncle who died in the yeah. farm, the granduncle who was in the RAF. That was on my mother's side. Uh, my own grandfather uh, used to talk way to me when I'd, I'd push him about his time uh, during the end of the War of Independence, the Civil War. Uh, it was quite interesting. He was a sergeant, a station sergeant mm. in the Guards during the Second World War. So he brought a few uh, German airmen into internment. Oh, right. And this was the famous story of Irish sham neutrality during the Second World War, where, you know, we, we, we were neutral, of course, and we're going to come to Irish neutrality, obviously. Um, but we said we were neutral on the side of the Allies, and we always told ourselves that our hearts were in the right place. Uh, so the British airman who came down over Ireland was escorted over the border. The German was interned. And that literally did happen, didn't it? It did, it did. And, and um, as I remember my grandfather talking about this particular German uh, pilot, Herr Hurst, I remember was, was the name. <laughs> and the, the reason I remember it is because he'd taken a few souvenirs, a few rounds of ammunition, because the army would arrive and police up the area and take the aircraft away and uh, yeah. weapons and all of that kind of thing. And um, my grandfather gave me one of the rounds. I remember it. Uh, he took the cartridge apart so that I got the actual bullet end that yeah. would be fired that couldn't be. It was inert yeah. now um, because it was it would still have been alive around even. So Herr Hurst and did Herr Hurst come down in a farm somewhere near Mullingar? No, it would have been somewhere around Kilkenny, uh, Castle Colmore because that's at the time where my grandfather was stationed. He was a good way off piste then, wasn't he? Did you think he was in Wales? Uh, I would say he was probably on his way back from uh, a run but it, it wasn't uncommon for German aircraft to, to use Ireland, the Irish coast in the east as a guiding line to fly up along a navigation aid navigation aid exactly and then they would divert uh, across uh, to their target area but it, it, most of the times they would be on runs if they were going through the likes of Liverpool and Manchester yeah. and like so, so I, vis I visions of the German pilot and, and, and the, uh, the Irish guard saying to him for, for you Herhurst the war is over um, and was it I mean it w probably not a bad outcome for a German pilot as a relatively quiet place to sit out the conflagration for most of them uh, absolutely they were happy to have survived whatever they had gone through if they had to have a crash landing or if there were seamen that had been washed up or, or rescued by a passing Irish ship um, and they were happy to sit out the war but there was a core a hard core of elements that were diehard Nazis yes. that uh, believed in the war effort how, how many how many interned Germans did we have that can do you know off the top of my head I couldn't give an exact figure but there would have been a few hundred uh, I would say at, at its height and to go back to a point you made there Connor initially there were allied airmen in turned uh, somewhat embarrassingly in a way it was more for form because to go to, to address the issue of, of Irish neutrality and you're quite right to use the term sham and actually the historian T. Ryle Dwyer down in Cork uh, wrote an excellent book called Ireland's Phony Neutrality which focuses very much on our diplomatic relationship uh, with the allies in general but with the US in particular when they came into the war um, and documents how Irish diplomatic bags uh, and diplomatic reports from Europe and Germany in particular were used, were given to the Allies to uh, act as yardsticks to assess bomb yeah. damage by the Allies. So if we, you know, hypothetically, if Ireland had been put on trial for giving, for, for being neutral, there wouldn't have been the evidence to find us guilty. There was plenty of evidence to say that we were breaking accepted norms of neutrality consistently in favour of the Allied side. Well, here is the thing. That's an interesting point. Uh, and you're largely right but here is the thing we engaged in a process that 
that is still has reverberations to this day where inadvertently I think um, the state and De Valera's government created through censorship and through the Irish the Ireland of the times a, a, a false reality to the Irish people that is not indicative of what Ireland was doing during the war had Ireland had the war taken place uh, maybe five to ten years later you know the late 40s into the 1950s with modern technology and communications having modernized it would not have been possible to keep quiet the level of cooperation yeah. Ireland gave to the Allies we were one step removed from being a belligerent state I presume the Germans knew that the Germans well they knew a certain amount had they known for a fact the level of cooperation with say Shannon for example which was still uh, largely a flying boat base at foreign even weather reports from Shannon famously were, were, were critical for the D-Day landings but, weren't they Blacksod Bay yeah the, the weather report from Blacksod Bay decided uh, Eisenhower made his decision to go on the 6th of June uh, 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 an interval within bad weather that uh, was crucial to um, to the Allied success of those landings. But a lot of other things, the um, the Donegal Corridor, for example, a quiet agreement for Allied aircraft to fly in support of the Atlantic convoys uh, was crucial to uh, to the Allied aircraft getting out into the Atlantic without having to go on a circuitous route. Uh, the level of intelligence cooperation between Colonel Dan Bryan, who was the director of G2, uh, military intelligence, uh, and MI5 was crucial in um, in rolling up German espionage attempts that were never successful in Ireland. Mm. Um, to the point that both practitioners within the British and American intelligence services reported back to their superiors that we don't need to be trying to do anything covert or clandestine, and nor do we need to be pressurising the Irish because they couldn't be giving us more cooperation uh, if they were if they had actually declared war. Yeah, uh, and you know what, our heart was in the right place. You know, Irish people. People in droves were serving in British armed forces, uh, cultural ties to America obviously enormous. Uh, we were a nascent democracy and um, uh, it, clearly the you know the Nazi state wasn't. Um, so the, uh, no doubt we were on the side of the angels. But from this... I would agree, but just if I could just add uh, something else to it, because it's, it's important we, we, we own our, our history, good, bad and indifferent. We, at the same time, allowed uh, a notion take place that we were holier than thou, this sort yeah. of Irish exceptionalism. and. You know, this is at odds with some of the things the government did at the time. And just two things that uh, your listeners might have an interest in. One is that at the end of the war, in order, our relationships with Britain improved hugely by the end of the Second World War. Mm. Even the Minister for External Affairs, Joe Walsh, acknowledged that the war ironically improved the relationship between Ireland and Britain. But Britain, uh, or rather Ireland and the US, the, the US minister, as he was called, because we were still part of the Commonwealth, he couldn't be called an ambassador, David Gray, was very uh, Hostile to uh, Ireland's stance and to De Valera in particular, and he, on, despite the reports from his uh, professional intelligence officers that were liaising with Ireland, he was reporting very negatively. And therefore, the body politic in the United States was not well disposed to Ireland at the end of the war. There was a bit of a charm offensive, mm. a, a delegation sent across, and ironically, the delegation used as part of their. Uh, their, their toolbox of, of charm uh, the, the numbers of Irish volunteers who had fought with yeah. the Allies in particular the British forces while at the same time they set out to discriminate against Irishmen uh, a certain quotary of Irishmen who had uh, fought with the Allies who were former Irish soldiers now the, the reason for this was mm. some of those soldiers I think about 500 were deserters they had deserted at a time when Ireland was no longer under threat and they were bored effectively and, and perhaps 
uh, some were genuine. They wanted to fight the Nazis. Oh, and they weren't going to do that, you know, guarding a barracks in Mullingar. Exactly. But here is the crux that we should not forget. Those, a lot of people to this day say, well, it was, it was appropriate that those men be blacklisted for jobs in the state. But there were Irish men who worked for the state as civil servants or public servants. I'm thinking of one, I think his name is Jim Donovan, who worked for the ESB, who was a committed IRA volunteer, who was a bomb maker, who was a, a complicit in the bombing campaign in London, who ended up being interned for the duration of the war because of his attempts to, to uh, fraternise with Nazi agents, who got to go back to his job when he was released from internment. Mm. There were a number, not many, and it was probably overlooked, but we shouldn't forget it. We, we as shouldn't. a state, we, we dropped the ball in certain occasions. And, and you know, things, I, I, I look back, and maybe we should guard against this, but I look back at that young state, and often a young independent state is very touchy about its dignity and its identity. Yes. And there was an unspoken sin, um, and it wasn't that you left the Irish Defence Forces, it's that you went and served the Crown. Mm. I, I, I'd say an, Ir an Irish soldier mm. who deserted and went and joined the US Marines probably had uh, a, a different reaction because that prejudice wasn't there. Yes, I, I would agree. In fact, there were countless occasions of US service uh, personnel when they were based in Northern Ireland coming across the border in, in uniform and largely being you know, left to their own devices or being treated uh, as uh, conquering heroes by members of the public in Dublin or wherever else they bumped into them. And in some cases, some of these people were following up on family connections yeah. and things. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. So arising out of all of this milieu or this kind of pastiche around the the, 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 the end of the Second World War and what came afterwards, um, it gave birth to this myth of Irish neutrality, um, which became a sort of a sacred cow for various different people, uh, various different voices in Ireland. One of them is perhaps you could loosely term the hard left or socialist uh, voice, uh, which to my mind has always defined itself as being anti-American. They may, they may not say that. That, but mm -hmm. give me any global issue, I, I, I know what their view is because I just have to see where America is and pick the opposite. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the selectivity of outrage about Israel, for example, to my mind, is kind of part of that anti-American perspective. But then there are also genuine um, commitments to neutrality, belief in neutrality, uh, belief in its the morality of being a neutral state. Um, and I guess there's two conversations we could have. One is should we preserve Irish neutrality? But the second one is, are we truly neutral? Or is that just something that we call ourselves as we sit here unarmed and unprepared for anything? Well, you see, you've put your finger on the pulse of what I feel is the problem here, Connor. I agree with your comments about it from a, a moral point of view. I think it's wrong to think that there's something uh, morally noble about standing on the sidelines uh, if uh, some of your neighbours are being aggressed against. 
I would consider it the same thing if I was walking down Capel Street, for example, and I see a person being assaulted, that it would be appropriate for me, you know, a healthy, able-bodied man to walk past that and not intervene. I would intervene. Mm. And I see that in, in the same vein. Now, I think most Irish people are concerned about neutrality from the point of view of not wanting to be dragged into some ongoing war. And I can yeah. understand that. But the real issue that has never been brought to the fore in media discussions, mm. even in recent times, where does this put us in terms of securing Ireland, our territory, our people, our assets right now? Mm. And the, the reality is we have more mechanisms for cooperation and coordination with partner European states with regards to overseas deployments of Irish troops yeah. than we have with regards to home defence. That's, that's a problem. How do we secure ourselves? We're relying on geography. And I, I mean, I remember a history teacher telling me once, um, talking about the, the run-up to the Second World War, uh, the Nazi state did a bit of a charm offensive. Um, you can actually see they entered teams in the Dublin Horse Show and they had cultural exchanges and they had brass bands touring the west of Ireland, taking photographs as they went. And it was a bit of a laugh for the locals. But two years later, an invasion was a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. And they had taken all the photos. They physically had photos. So suddenly we realized that our, our, our neutral stance was a naive stance. Here we still are now. And we're not expecting a Russian tank to make its way from Donetsk to Dunleary Harbour. Um, but Russians are overflying our airspace with impunity. Um, I don't know what they're doing in Orwell Road or why they're allowed to. Um, we might come to that. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's a, a whole new front in all of this conversation, which is cyber war and what they might do to our infrastructure that way. So can you tell me a couple of things, Declan? Firstly, what do we have? Forget calling us neutral. We're, we're unarmed and blind. <coughs> I agree. What do we physically have? And, and what do you think is the, is the physical minimum that we need? Certainly. And, and just before I get dug into that, the it is important to address the fact that really we we in our internal conversations keep using the term neutral, but we are we can't lay claim to that. We're a, a, an integral part of the European Union. We're interdependent on so many levels. To be truly neutral, a you've got to have a very well resourced um, armed forces, which we we don't. Secondly, you've got to be able to act independently in a, like a country like Switzerland, for example. Yeah. We've never been able to do that. We are interdependent with the UK and will continue to be. Um, just like New Zealand is with Australia or Canada with the US. Uh, so we delude ourselves. Mm. And this delusion it puts us at times in a dangerous space that we're ignorant of. And so getting to that, we're not, luckily, for geopolitical reasons, you know, geography and culture, we are under the umbrella of NATO, we're under the umbrella of UK, US uh, defence. The threat of a physical invasion, a full spectrum invasion, is very unlikely mm. uh, from from any quarter. But you can't, you know, put a full stop there, you, yeah. you know, and say that's it. But what are the threats at the moment? And the threats are, I would say, multi-spectrum across what's now known as hybrid platform. So, you know, about when we talk about hybrid war, that is uh, aggression by means other than purely military, but including okay. military. So, uh, things like, as you mentioned, cyber security, espionage, um, a, a, a paramilitary support, in other words, uh, yeah. finding weak points internally. The, the Russians, and to some extent the Chinese, have been paying close attention to Ireland's weak points. Our mm. intelligence services have been battling to try and stay ahead of this and working with partner nations to try and contain these mm. threats. And the problem is our policymakers 
are largely ignorant uh, of this or want to remain ignorant because our, our voting population have remained ignorant or if they're not ignorant of it they, they are uh, very much politicised on one yes. end of the spectrum and a tendency to underanalyze things and Absolutely. say look Ireland is neutral we got France we got Germany we got the US they're, they're going to protect us wh- wh- whether we want them to or not why would we spend billions that we could spend on housing. Now, here's the point. We don't have to spend billions, but if we ignore uh, plugging in, let's use that term, to the defence architecture, uh, what we risk is, and this is an important point for people to understand, we risk not even being pedestrians, but being irrelevant. So the NATO nations, the other Western European nations will not uh, ignore Irish airspace, sea space and what's going on uh, because Ireland decides to ignore it. So we become irrelevant to uh, to what's going on. We lose our decision-making process. Mm. Now, people would say, I'm sure a small country who'd listen to us anyway. But that's not true. We, luckily, we live in a part of the world that is largely rules-based. We see that within the European Union. So if we plug into the system in whatever way we choose, we get to influence what's happening. And having a professional defence forces that's on point means that the US or the British or the French or whatever else, where they may have concerns about, let's say, Russian activity off our seaboard, that they will coordinate mm. with the Irish state, that they won't ignore us, yeah. so that we get to influence the, the outcomes. And e- even at a simple level, it feels like being an adult in the room. Um, and, you know, yes. I, I've reflected on, on, on neutrality in the past, and, and, and uh, you know, nobody, nobody's going to make me Ireland's dictator tomorrow. Um, but I, my assessment would be, I, I don't see us joining a NATO alliance. I'm not sure that's where we add value. There is a certain soft power space, a certain um, credibility. Uh, you know, when Brian Keenan was kidnapped in Beirut, for example, Irish diplomats were, be, were able to, you know, have influence that, that were, was closed to um, explicit um, members of the Western alliance, like the US, the UK. So maybe there's a niche role there that could add a bit more value than us just being another division. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, I think we do need some hardware. Uh, we, we, we should be able to see our own skies. We should be world leaders in things like fishery policing and ocean protection, given the, the geography. And we just choose to do none of this, which frustrates me. So before we get to the soft stuff, what hardware do you think we need? Should we have a fleet of... of, of F-16s that we maintain. It it would be a crazy uh, spend of money. And and just before I expand on that, the the thing about, before the hardware, you you mentioned about joining NATO would be politically uh, impossible for us Mm. at the moment, I would argue. But but from a practical point of view, it, it would make a huge amount of sense. But we have to be pragmatic. There are many ways to develop the bespoke relationships that we need to have because uh, Australia, for example, uh, is not a member of NATO, but it has partnership status with them. We're, we're in Partnership for Peace, which is a, a, a mechanism created by NATO to allow countries like ours and the Swedes and the Finns participate in NATO-led operations. So Irish troops have been on a number of NATO-led peacekeeping, peace enforcement operations. What we need to do is develop bespoke architecture that uh, allows us to communicate and coordinate Another important point, you've touched on it and I sometimes forget about it, whatever arrangements we make, the argument that 
uh, not adhering to an ultra-neutral status, which which we're not doing at the moment yes, anyway. Yes, yeah, de facto, we're not. That's not going to interfere with our uh, diplomatic ability or our peacekeeping ability. The Norwegians are far more effective than us in many ways on the international stage when it comes to the diplomacy you outlined. Mm. Uh, well, we, we punch well, but we, I mean... We do, let's, uh, we do, but we sometimes over-exaggerate it. Yeah. But hold on, let's not take away from it. Uh, what I'm saying is, any arrangements that we create with regards to our home security and defence will not interfere with that. When the Norwegians or the Canadians or the Dutch or the Swedes or the Finns, all countries that are, even though the Finns and Swedes are not yet in NATO, but they, they have had very close relationships and they take their defence far more seriously. Well, they have to. They're the bear next door. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. But nobody, you know, questions their bona fides when they get involved in roles as honest brokers as mm. they have done. We're not, we seem to think we're the only country uh, and that we that can do this and can do it because we're not in any type of alliances or defence arrangement. That's not true. Yeah, we give ourselves more thought than the rest of the world does, which is hardly a surprise, really. And, you know, we, we sort of parse and nuance our relationship with colonial Britain and say, well, we're great, we're the exception because, you know, we were colonised by the Brits and we're therefore not guilty of any of the things they did when they were power, which is nonsense. I mean, most people in the world can't tell the difference between Ireland and Britain. Neither could Russian TV lately, but they were mocking up nuclear attacks and didn't seem to know it was Donegal they were hitting and not Scotland. Well, the, the Russians have always, back to the 80s and beyond, considered Ireland to be, you know, regardless of whatever stance we've, we've taken about things, to be part under the influence of NATO, to be in NATO's sphere of influence. And they're right. Yeah. Uh, the the reality is in the 80s, when the NATO nations were had plans in place to respond to uh, if the Cold War turned hot, if the Russians came pouring through the Fulda Gap and uh, the, the West had to be reinforced, Western mm. Europe had to be reinforced. There were these things uh, NATO had called red flag exercises and there were uh, there were tests of the US's ability to fly men and material across the Atlantic at right. short notice. Ireland was part of that process in terms of refueling in our airspace and if needs be refueling in our on our territory. Um, the, the Russians knew about that. Yeah. We were part of the targeting process. So while the, the recent Russian TV programme and threats about tsunamis and whatever or something that's farcical with weapon systems that they don't have or don't have that capacity they always were targeting uh, yeah. targeting us we, you know, we weren't going to escape some onslaught in Europe because we were holding Mother Ireland so a naive neutrality was never going to do us any good a, a, a more integrated attitude to, towards um, you know our partners and the rest of the world and not necessarily hardware because the threats that, that, that we face these days I mean there's with the inverted commas traditional terrorist attack whether that's domestic or or, you know, motivated by, by uh, Islamic uh, jihadists or whatever it is. Uh, and then there's the more conventional um, theatre that we're all looking at in Ukraine now. Uh, and then there's other fronts like cybercrime. I mean, we, we spend bugger all on defence and we might think we've saved money, but, you know, one punch slipped under our guard and landed on the chin of the HSE yeah. and that's cost us 400 million quid and counting yeah. just because we weren't looking. We weren't... Yeah, we weren't, we weren't thinking... We weren't uh, what's known as red teaming, which yeah. is uh, you're assessing your own uh, defence architecture and finding gaps in it by using either, you, you can do this in the cyber world or in the physical world, where you have people that are skilled at uh, finding holes in the, in the system. This is the, ha the hacker that the bank employs to yes. try and smash in, yeah. Now, you can you can hire people to do that, but they will only be able to find the holes at a 
very basic level because we should remember look at the damage to Irish society and the Irish economy that HSC attack did and that wasn't strategically inspired that was a group of criminals mm. who have agency from the Kremlin to operate in there yeah well I was going to say but not pirates so much as privateers precisely you remember pri privateer back in the you know back in the halcyon days of the pirates in the Caribbean and all that they, um, had, a license they had a license by a state yeah. to, to, to basically go and make mayhem and make profit if you can yeah. so there's a sort of an unspoken um, blessing from the big boss yes. for these guys yes but imagine now if the big boss as, as is probably likely the case that they are making plans to use all their resources because the Russians have been very uh, keen to develop their capacity to wage hybrid warfare mm. probably at the expense they definitely have taken the eye off the ball as more traditional conventional and kinetic operations as we've seen in Ukraine the army is rusty in it's almost rusty. every sense of the word yeah. they've had very little opportunity to practice mass manoeuvre operations mm. and the, the Russian army command and control system is very out of date their junior officers are not trained to have autonomy and make decisions like the way Western countries wasn't are. that the early I wouldn't get complacent about that because no, that was the no. early story of the second world war where you know from the Barbarossa invasion they caught the Soviet Union completely unprepared, unprepared and ramshackle and a deprofessionalized military that had been subject to purges yeah. and absolute chaos and that you know they retreated for 1200 kilometers before they got their stuff together yes. and came back at you. So I, I wouldn't be complacent oh, no, about I, the I, Russians the, off the Russians to a sloppy always, start. They always resort to uh, might and weight of numbers and yeah. weight of munitions. And you can see elements of that in Ukraine at the moment. Um, Tolerance of casualties too yeah, in ways it, that Western yeah. governments just cannot do. Remember they spent 10 years in Afghanistan in the 80s hemorrhaging blood and treasure before it came to uh, the decision to pull out. But coming back to the hybrid warfare aspect, because this is really in terms of Irish defence and security this is where we need to, to focus uh, we need to uh, think in terms of what if the HSE attack or something like that was part of a strategic initiative uh, by the Russian state for example where you had what, attack. what if they cut transatlantic cables or well, something of that sort well, let's even not go so dramatic what if there was a multi-platform attack on a number of government uh, essential government departments what if that was coupled with uh, a campaign of espionage uh, aimed at multinational firms and uh, that was also adjoined to uh, a campaign to stir up uh, foment dissent within existing paramilitary groupings. Yeah. Think uh, of the chaos that would wreak in Irish society and how would we respond to that? Is there an unspoken agreement between the superpowers at the moment not to go too far with cyber war, not, not to target each other's energy grids, for example, because almost like mutually assured destruction. If you let this genie out of the bottle, I don't think there's a, uh, there is an agreement of that sort. I think uh, if uh, if your listeners uh, were paying attention to the last few years, they'll know that there were um, probes and penetrations of the electricity grid in Ireland in 2017 uh, in the ESB. And not too long after that, there was a probe on the Scottish version of that. Similarly, uh, there was a probe, I think, on the HSE. Was it around 20, hmm. 2018? And an hour later, there was a penetration of the Scottish NHS, their health service. So what was happening there, and it was never said out loud, but 
uh, people I, I would have served within the security services um, acknowledged that this was a state actor, which is mm-hmm. puts a shorthand for saying this was the, the Russians. Well, it's either North Korea or the Russians. Is there another state uh, actor well, that does China, that? China, China is, okay. is quite, but China is, is selective. But China has been very active in uh, espionage uh, operations uh, in this country. But the Russians have been more belligerent. And what they were doing there was knowing that the Irish grid works a certain way, it parallels the British, finding the weak points, mm. uh, using it as a kind of a dry run, and then using the information gleaned to uh, launch a penetration operation into the British uh, systems. Wow. And you know, one of the things I struggle to understand, and I know that the world has diplomatic niceties and we have ambassadors and, you know, recognize the sanctity of diplomatic bags and CD plates and each other's embassies. Um, but what are the Russians doing in Orwell Road? Um, and why can't we say to Russia, get out of that building? We'll facil- here's, a, here's a new building. You, you can have a glass box in Balls Bridge where we can see what you're doing. You get the hell out of Orwell Road and we're going to you know, deconstruct whatever mischief you've been up to underground there. Well, thankfully, they didn't get to uh, go ahead with their plans to build this uh, this new centre, whatever it was going to be. There's a lot of speculation on, on which, what it Which, for context, be. there is housing a diplomatic mission, which, based on their footprints in other small countries, is like 10, 15 times the size that it needs to be, um, and, and with a whole host of sophisticated electronics, yes. etc., and, and, you know, signal shielding and all sorts of... And, and a construction crew, uh, and... Uh, it was all brought in from they, they brought in from yeah. Russia to do it and a diplomatic entourage that is the second biggest in Dublin the only country with a bigger entourage is the United States and that's only marginally bigger a country that we have extensive trade cultural and familial links with so if, if, if Russia if, if, if Russia says to us nothing to see here this is just culture and trade um, you know why can't we call bullshit on that and um, and, and, and it's still our territory when we CPO the bloody building and put a stop to it well um, yeah that's a, it's a, you point to an interesting it's normally assumed that the embassy of a country that that is their soil uh, and I believe that legally is not entirely the case mm. however diplomatically it would set a precedent to uh, order them out of it however what did happen was that when the Russians uh, put in had to put in for planning permission mm. and the local council were on the point of giving it to them when the security <laughs> services brought it to the government's attention that this needed to be blocked as a matter of urgency. It was, so they didn't get to go ahead. And, and Board Planola had to look through their list to see if, like, James Bond villain building secret lair <laughs> was one, one of the tick boxes by which you could object. It should never have gotten to that. But yeah. unfortunately, the security services have had the problem. When I say the services, I'm talking about both the Garda Shikana and the Defence Forces, the Garda Shikana Security and Intelligence Section of Crime and Security Branch uh, in G2, the, the Directorate of Intelligence and Defence Forces, have been monitoring these activities, but they don't always get the uh, attention they deserve. They've, they've got to... The problem mm. with our security services, unlike other larger countries, they, they do their job, but they may be not very good at lobbying. And our government, mm. uh, in general, our, um, our politicians, and indeed a lot of our senior civil servants, while they're quite capable people in many spheres, when it comes to the security slash military slash espionage 
environment, they are woefully illiterate. Well, we've you know we don't have any experience. We just don't have any experience. I mean, uh, in, in in the UK, they're discovering after Brexit that you know they actually don't have a culture and experience of forging trade deals. They haven't done it solo in forty years. Mm-hmm. They're trying to relearn old skills. So we don't have a military industrial complex. We don't have a military footprint of any sort. We call ourselves neutral, and we just don't have a lot of expertise in that space. But what I was going to ask you is, there must be some things we can do. If if in modern defence, you're not talking about literally, can I shoot that Russian plane out of the sky if, if he's above Ireland? And it's more, can I see round corners? Can I see where the next hybrid threat is coming from? So do we have any capability of seeing that? Are there Irish James Bonds. Do, 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 is, is there Irish capability that, you know, is not generally seen by the normal citizen, but we should be bloody glad is there? Uh, are we doing anything or is it just, I despair, amateur hour all the way? No, it's not as bad as that. Uh, it's not as bleak as that at all. But, but nevertheless, there's a, there are a lot of things that need to be developed and built upon and we need additional expertise. There's, let me focus on two things that I think, mm. you know, your, your, your listeners will find relevant and interesting. <clears throat> One is some uh, some years back there was a bit of a debate uh, erupted about uh, in, in view of the level of international terrorism hmm. should we have a, a specific national intelligence or national security service yeah. which is still a, something that should be examined <clears throat> but born out of that was a creation of a new entity called the, uh, the um, National Security Analysis Centre which was a bit of a copy of something the New Zealanders and the Aussies have which is they call it the, national, the Bureau of National Assessments in uh, Australia and hmm. the National Bureau of Assessments in New Zealand it sounds very innocuous but what it was was an, anal- an analytical competency based in the office of the Prime Minister mm. <clears throat> that had access to all of the intelligence being gathered by police, military and uh, national intelligence service mm-hmm. and that they would crunch that and uh, brief, directly brief policymakers so that they would be up to date and that they, it would be clear to them so that there would be no ambiguities mm. and uh, timeline gaps. Now, so we, we kind of sensibly copied that, but mm. it's it hasn't been active. We hear far more about the National Cybersecurity uh, Centre, but cybersecurity is only one end of the strand. So there seems that we've kind of dropped the ball there. We created something that it hasn't published its white paper yet. I don't think mm. there's any, there's a, there isn't a political sense to, uh, to develop that, because if we develop that appropriately, that would be a really effective asset. It would harness knowledge from military, police and mm. other elements. Well, I come back to the like if uh, the example I gave earlier. If we had prevented the HSE cyber attack, um, you know that that's four hundred million quid yes. and counting. So the argument, uh, you know, against prevention on the grounds that it, it's turning us into a, 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 a military country, one that you know once armed might become proactive and yeah. take us in directions we don't want to go. Uh, but but uh, you know, b- basic defence capability it surely isn't something we should even debate. No, it's not. It, it should be seen as important uh, as health, as housing, uh, anything mm. of that nature. And uh, my point consistently has been, we don't need to spend a lot of money. We need to uh, take sensible and prudent decisions and create uh, necessary uh, mechanisms. And so, to come back to the point about NSAC, for example, is one area that we've created it, but we haven't really decided what to do with it, because mm. I think of a lack of strategic understanding. However, on a positive note, 
in, in recent times, uh, the review on the Defence Forces recommended certain things. Mm. Now the government have uh, announced that there will be some spending on the Naval Service and on the Air Corps. Yeah. The key thing that's going to happen with the Air Corps and with the state in regards to air security is the purchase of a military-grade radar system, what's known as a primary radar system, yeah. which allow, will allow us have complete knowledge about who's coming in and out of our airspace, regardless whether they turn off a transponder. I was going to say we had Russian encroachments and to to what I think should be our embarrassment for one of the world's richest nations. Um, we didn't even know it was happening because yes. they turned off the transponders. We needed the British or the French or somebody mm-hmm. to tell us that it was going on. Uh, now, I'm not sure that you need to scramble an Irish F-16 no. from Baldonald to fly alongside him. And an uh, F-16 would be out of date. Oh, talking about F- 35s, but here, you're, you're absolutely right. But here's the thing. The RAF are already policing our airspace. Mm-hmm. At our behest, there was a, an MOU signed uh, quietly uh, mm-hmm. sometime after 9-11. And the, go- the government rarely want to fully admit to this, but it, the former GOC of the Air Corps um, wow. spoke about this at a security conference uh, back in February 2020, at Slondal it was called. And the point being here is that you, on one end of the spectrum you get people who decry that oh we shouldn't have anything we shouldn't have anything to do with Britain with regards to this but on the other end of the spectrum you have people then who are saying we should be purchasing a squadron of F-35s mm. we're a sovereign nation <clears throat> I want to inject a little sense into this I believe that we're a sovereign I, nation I, I saw you could do that on a lease basis for an annualised 150 million or something like that I have to say my instinct was that's relatively cheap. Um, yeah, but no, you don't have to preserve a combat air patrol over Dublin, but y- y- you know. Yeah, but it, here, here's the thing: people are focusing solely on the aircraft. What they're not thinking about is you have the pilots are going to have to be trained, mm-hmm. the maintenance crews, and then the really important thing to de- to develop a, a fighter command system, uh, the command and control knowledge base. Mm-hmm. We don't have any corporate knowledge of that. We'd be building from the ground up. Granted, we could get assistance. It would cost a lot of money, and we probably wouldn't even be fully fit for purpose. All to be able to have an aircraft with a tricolour on it, and for us to wave flags like little Irelanders. A grown-up country, like New Zealand, they put their uh, jets in mothballs because they couldn't afford them, and they said to the Australians, mm. you're going to have to take up the slack here. And we'll rent that service from you, or whatever well, it is. Well, effectively, but they, it's, it's, we, don't even, we don't even have to worry about renting it. The British are happy to do it, because it makes sense for them as well. Mm. It is a quid pro quo, so recognise that there's a a quid pro quo. We will have the uh, military radar system that will allow us now fully know what's happening. The British only could know a certain amount because their radar didn't extend to the western seaboard of Ireland. And so everybody wins when you have a conjoined system. They have a corporate memory of you know, running a fighter command that defends and can patrol airspace. Mm. That's what they do. So what we uh, have agreed with the MO, in the MOU is that when they come into our airspace, they come under Irish control and command. Okay. And any decisions that have to be made uh, in, in crucial areas will be made by an Irish Taoiseach. And that's that's grown up. As so hi- hy- hypothetically, and I, this literal scenario is perhaps very unlikely, but like hypothetically, uh, a Russian aircraft 
or a Chinese aircraft off an aircraft carrier in the Atlantic um, is about to do something in Ireland. And we, 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 you're saying that in theory, we have the def- defence capability to shoot that aircraft down. And it will be the Taoiseach that makes the call, the call as to whether or not to fire the shot. But it would be a British aircraft that does it. Precisely. Now, I think that's that you've just defined what is the modern reality. And we, we um, act in a multilateral way on so many other levels. Mm. Now, the other side to it is that's the worst possible case scenario. But by having this area plugged, you're far, the, the Russians come have been dipping in and out of our airspace because it has been a weak spot. They're not going yeah. to dip in and out of it if they realise that that area has been zipped up. They're looking for weakness. I used to say about the car thief, you know, back in the day, somebody's looking to rob a handbag out of a car. Your job isn't to make your car uh, bulletproof. It's just to make it one of the difficult ones. Precisely. So the handbag thief moves on and looks somewhere else. In, in defence theory, a German defence theorist in the 60s, Fritz Kramer, coined the phrase provocative weakness. Ireland yeah. is a classic example of provocative weakness. We think <clears throat> by sticking our heads in the sand, by talking about neutrality in a moral sense, that that somehow makes our home territory. And when I say territory, I'm not just talking about the physical space, oh. but a, a whole variety of other things. I'm really talking about the safety of our people people and our society and economy. We leave that in a weakened state because we somehow get this all wrapped up in some warped moral conundrum. Yeah, and, and you know, there have, been, there have been few occasions in history where, where willful timidity and weakness has proved to be a wise course of action. Um, it's rare. So hope, hopefully, at least in my view, I'm not quite sure what form Irish defence will look like, um, but I think a good start to the conversation is to accept that we cannot just continue to live in the sandpits like children and pretend that there's no need for Irish defence at all. Absolutely. And can I amplify that a little bit, um, what you've just said there, I think what is going to happen over the coming years, and I think your, your listeners, because they're, they're mature people, will probably uh, be interested to see how this evolves. It's At the moment, it's very binary. You get people saying, oh, we should remain completely neutral, which, which we're not hmm. at the moment. But yeah. People use terms like military neutrality. We're the only country that used that term. There's no, it's not defined in international law in any shape or form. Yeah. We're supporting the war effort in Ukraine, rightfully. Oh. I mean, just because we're not sending anti-tank missiles, which, which we should, uh, but uh, just because we're not, we're sending other things, not just humanitarian assistance. This is where it gets kind of missed by the mainstream media because yeah. they're a bit illiterate about this as well. We're sending... Uh, money that purchases fuel for the Ukrainian armoured vehicles. We're sending mm. uh, body armour, military rations. We're assisting in a meagre way, but assisting yeah. with the war effort. Anyway, here's the thing. As we move forward, uh, the other side of the house said, well, we should join NATO or we should be purchasing jets. That's unlikely. Neither, either of those are unlikely to happen. Mm. But what is likely to happen is within the European Union, interesting things are happening whereby, for example, people will be familiar with PESCO, Permanent Structured Cooperation, that yeah. concept. Treated with deep suspicion by anti-militarists in yeah. the Irish political spectrum. Um, I mean, one of the, th- one of the ways in which um, previous European referenda have been kind of obscured and dust has been kicked up has been by people raising this threat of Ireland will be part of a European um, army. Now the idea of a European army to anyone who has a military background is is largely farcical because they have there are so many different cultures within that I mean you will have a defence alliance like NATO is the most cohesive most European countries most EU countries are in NATO they don't want to replicate it what they want to do is create a more bespoke mechanism that to go back to a point you mentioned will 
focus on soft power arrangements. And yeah. Ireland is very recognised and is valued uh, as a as a partner, as an ally uh, in this conflict and in other situations where we've brought our expertise to the table mm. in an appropriate way. So nobody expects us to become a suddenly uh, a belligerent war fighting nation. Yeah. But but what can we do to support the necessary efforts at security? Now, PESCO and another thing called the Strategic Compass, which has been developed, in essence, what they are is not about developing an alliance or something hard edge. It's creating a mechanism where your clusters of European countries uh-huh. can come together and decide well we've got a few key things that are relevant to us and we're going to cooperate uh, yeah. on this and the, here's the important thing uh, certainly within PESCO that allows for EU countries also to cooperate with what they call third countries so for Ireland this uh-huh. is I think this is uh, how this is going to solve our problem first something like PESCO or indeed the strategic compass will allow us to uh, formulate a, a system of defence cooperation with Britain and maybe France and some of the other European uh-huh. countries with regards in particular to you know, to, to, to formalise the air defence arrangements yeah. to n- importantly coordinate our sea security so that we don't have, we don't have a clue what's going on underneath the water. We're able to have uh, some ability to observe above the surface but we don't even have ships with sonar. So even if we do it would still be limited but if we develop that capacity and then conjoin with the French with the, the Benelux countries and with the UK then we become far more knowledgeable and we don't have to sign mutual defence pacts they'll be happy to coordinate they'll be happy to know yeah. that Ireland is bringing something to the party and it to, won't cost us anything yeah, to your point of provocative weakness I mean I would assume if I'm a mischievous rogue actor Russian or otherwise I'm going to imagine I can't just tool my submarine up scap a flow uh, or you know, park it off uh, off Lille. I, I would expect uh, an emphatic response from the defenders of those territories. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I, I could I could come into Dublin Bay and pop the hatch, and who the hell is going to do anything about it? Oh, no, here is here is the reality. You, that's a very apt point to make because that is the general belief. And on one side of the coin, people say, "Well, we can't rely on any of those countries to protect us because we're not members of NATO." <clears throat> that is true in the official sense. However, the real politics is this and it's something we really need to be uh, aware of one end of the uh, argument says therefore we should stay aloof because mm. you know, if we stay aloof and maybe add value by being a slightly different voice in world councils rather than just another what? glove puppet of the western alliance we can add value not at the expense of our own domestic security. Like, as I said, uh, different countries have noble, you know, I think, was it Belgium uh, sought to indict a senior Israeli politician uh, after one of the bombardments of Palestine, even though it's a a committed member of NATO and the EU. I'm I'm not suggesting we do that, but what I'm saying is they they did something that was independent of what a lot of other European nations were doing. We need to get over this notion that by having a conjoined approach that it limits us from an independent stance. But can I go back to the Mm. point you were saying? You said about if uh, that there's no way uh, you know a Russian submarine would go uh, attempt to, uh, to to sail up Scapa Flow because it would meet with resistance. The same could be said if a if a Russian vessel or aircraft attempted to do something in southern in the Irish Republic, because the NATO nations 
with are monitoring the airspace and the sea. And if, if uh, Russian activities uh, indicated some sort of a belligerent approach or a, a flotilla, now I know we saw the Russian exercises, yeah. but that was well flagged and they, they were being monitored. But if there was an attempt uh, to, uh, would say, launch an airborne incursion onto the Western seaboard, mm. that would be flagged, that would be picked up by the Western nations, by the Nordics, by the Brits and, and the French and the others, and mm. indeed the US. Now, the way we are currently behaving, they would have picked that up and they would have plans. They already have plans in place for those kinds of scenarios and they would just affect them. And because Ireland has taken the stance it has, we would not be referred to or included. It would it would all happen in spite of us. And mm. a lot of people would say, well, maybe that's a good thing. But it's not because what... And, and people would say, well, even if we were conjoined, they still ignore what we would say. The difference is if we were committed to coordinating and mm. cooperating, then in a scenario like that, we would be because we would we would be cleared for higher levels of classified information. Yeah, and we would be told, and then we would be able to say, well, hold on, that might be what you're planning there mightn't be a good idea because we would bring our local knowledge to the table, and we would, like, we would bring our influence to the table, <coughs> just like we've done at countless other levels within the European Union. Yeah. Why would this be any different? And we've been very successful at it. I mean, I, I, my view is there's a couple of things. If we're going to bring anything to the party as Ireland matures into a nation that's willing to, to, to stand its round. A couple of things we're good at. Uh, we'll do fishery protection, marine policing, mm -hmm. search and rescue capability, yeah. uh, you know, radar visibility of our share of the Atlantic. We're very good at that. We dealt magnificently with 9-11 on mm -hmm. the day when you know half the world's aircraft had to be yep. controlled. We do, so we, we, we'll do that. Uh, the other platform on which we stand should be the cybersecurity stuff. We're, we're Europe, Silicon Valley. Yep. We should have tons of expertise. That, now, if we spend a realistic Irish defence budget into those areas, um, you know, we still wouldn't be able to fire a shot in anger, but, but at least we'd be playing our part in the network, wouldn't we? Absolutely, yes, I, I quite agree. I mean, <clears throat> we can still develop our defence forces to a, a better capacity for, uh, shall we say, conventional defence operations. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't be terribly expensive to do that. On the other hand, to, you know, if, if we were to quadruple our defence budget, it still wouldn't be enough for us to unilaterally protect ourselves. So coming back to your point, what can we bring to the table? Uh, if, if we make our defence capacity more agile and imaginative. So I'll give you an example. I was talking to a, a guy recently there. He's a cybersecurity expert. Hmm. He's also a reservist. And he and a number of his uh, colleagues were called up to assist uh, in the response to the HSE because yeah. the Defence Forces has produced some highly skilled cybersecurity people, but they're not being utilised because the Defence Forces are not the primary response. That's why I was asking you, are there Irish James Bonds? You know, is there a, a really clever Irish department that knows all about the dark web and hacking is there you know does an irish agent turn up in 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 uh, you know wherever in in uzbekistan with a false mustache and a clever passport and you know no that's not that that likely although there are a uh, reasonably uh, competent uh, means to, to 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 gather information abroad but we don't do a lot of external intelligence gathering. We could do a lot more of it. It, it. You don't have to be a big nation to be able to have your own uh, variation of external intelligence gathering. But if we hold that thought for a second, to come back to the cyber, 
number. We've got a lot of expertise, but we're not harnessing it properly. And uh, it, you know, the problem with the cyber security uh, response or defence is that it's not enough just to have practitioners. We need a strategic awareness. Mm. And I would argue that that was lacking because if you had conjoined the uh, National Cyber Security Centre and the National Security Analysis Centre, yeah. if they were working and scanning for threats, they would have spotted the weakness. We're not uh, spotting the weaknesses within our infrastructure. And then we would put, get our, our technocrats to go to work on plugging that. The technocrats can't be expected to operate at a strategic level. The, the, the Americans, one of their lessons out of 9-11 is that in high Insight, the dots were there to be connected. Yes. Now, in a sense, you can always say that in in, 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 in hindsight. But, you know, had their agencies cooperated together more fully, yeah. internecine rivalries and refusal shed, there's a lot of you know, red flags missed. You're absolutely right. They had a plethora of agencies who were empire building and trying to elbow each other out of the way. And also, the other thing is, sometimes organisations will come across actionable intelligence but not recognise it. And I remember uh, one of the jobs I had when I served overseas with the UN was dealing with a lot of the UN civil and humanitarian agencies and advising them on security matters but also uh, advising them about threat and helping them understand uh, elements of that and one of the spin-offs was oftentimes they had been longer in country than uh, was a, a peacekeeping battalion that would be deployed mm. and they would be sitting on information and relationships that they didn't realise were extremely uh, relevant to helping everybody stay secure yeah so um, harvesting that information. So a professional, professionals that can a, do that. A, a professionalizing of, of, of our defence uh, architecture and what we're trying to do. Um, there's there's loads we could get into. I mean, we, we haven't even begun, which I thought we might. We haven't even begun to talk about your own experience in Africa. We were, we were talking off mic about how you got on in South Sudan, um, and you know, it, it might be a conversation we come back to because it's it's a subject that interests me greatly, um, particularly sort of in in the broader sense, what's happening to um, and Africa and other sure. front lines of, of geopolitical security now that nobody's eyes on that ball and everybody's looking at Russia and Ukraine. So maybe we'll chat again. If, if we wrap it up, do you consider that there are reasons to be optimistic at the moment? Because one of the things I think Ukraine has done is it sort of gave the complacent Irish neutrality stance a bit of a slap in the face. And I think at very least we've, we've realised that we can't continue to neglect the tiny defence force we have, we're going to have to do something more. Are you optimistic that finally some people might be, be listening to you after all these years? Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that these this confluence of events uh, is going to influence uh, not just Ireland but Europe uh, about how to be a bit more imaginative about defence and security. And I think we will, maybe if we give it a bit of thought, we'll find the appropriate way to plug into that. I think it has also shown us something else, despite the poll that the Irish Times said there recently, said oh, a huge number of Irish people are still in favour of neutrality. I think what's going to have to happen is there's over the next two years or so, there's going to be a conversation. Because you and I could both say we're in favour of neutrality. But mm. what's apparent to me, a lot of Irish people say, yes, uh, I think we should remain neutral. But then they'll equally say, well, we should be supporting Ukraine. Yeah. In other words, most Irish people don't perceive neutrality as being standing off. They want to be engaged, but they're cautious about wanting to commit to sending troops or military yeah. what, what, what are the reasons why so many people can agree on neutrality is they can only agree on neutrality 
provided they also agree not to define it with precision because the moment you attempt to do so it's a bit like you know it becomes like Irish unity a phrase that can mean anything to anybody Uh, exactly and I think really if you took it's the most abused word in Hiberno-English neutrality I think if you were to delete it and insert independence and course of action that's really what most Irish people want they want to be able to cooperate and support our neighbours they want to have that support from our neighbours for us to be able to rely on but they don't want us to be hidebound to have to participate in every overseas war that may develop And, and, and the thing is because there are people who shout loud about this from one per- political persuasion and who are largely ignorant of military affairs, the reality is you can do that. We, Ireland has been involved probably in an active way in more NATO missions than a lot of NATO members. Isn't our UN peacekeeping service continuous now for 60 years or something? It is, five. but if you look at an Irish soldier on parade, a young Irish officer, a young Irish corporal or private, uh, you will see on their chest uh, an array of medals because we have, we have actually, to, to the detriment of our home defence. In fact, we are very configured with NATO. Our our officers and NCOs are trained to NATO standards. And before we deploy in any overseas missions, we we get an inspection team from NATO who come over and assess our capacity. And a few years ago, that team gave a brief to the Department of Defence and to the Chief of Staff, where they said, you're doing too many overseas operations and you're not getting enough time to build capacity at home. You need to adjust that balance. But going back to my point, so an Irish soldier on parade, you'll see medals for UN service, for EU service and for NATO service. Uh, In Afghanistan, there was uh, up until near the end of that mission, there was a consistent small input from Ireland uh, in terms of force security, intelligence analysis and bomb disposal. Uh, In in fact, Ireland was probably more involved in that than some of the full-time NATO members who didn't send any assistance. So So what we've been doing is picking and mixing and saying, well, that's directly relevant to our policy or we think that's very important and once the mission had a UN um, mandate hmm. we could participate like if, if there's a UN mandate under the current arrangement we well, could go the, to war the, the triple lock arrangement and that's the piece that, 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 that I think Joe Public was reassured by I mean, yes. I, I, only, Irish deployment can only follow a, a UN mandate a decision by the government and decision the by the door, door yeah. um, but the, the, the silliness of that is and I think it's now become apparent to the public that the UN mandate means that the Russians or the Chinese or indeed any other country on the Security Council but the Russians or the Chinese can veto and uh, so the UN has become completely irrelevant to the war in Ukraine which is unfortunate because of the Russian position on the Security Council and in Ireland's case back in 2005 I think, I forget the exact year there was an Irish participation in EU mission to Macedonia Mm. there were police and military members and we nearly had to pull out of it because the UN mandate wasn't being renewed due to a, a blockage by the Chinese. So a Chinese decision was going to have a direct impact on independent Irish foreign policy. That should annoy us a hell of a lot more than the RAF being used to protect our airspace. Unintended consequences, unintended consequences. I want us to be a sovereign and independent nation, but the actions I've taken means that it's uh, China that's going to decide what I do. A totalitarian state. uh, So we we should rectify that as a matter of course. That that mechanism was created by Bertie Ahern to keep the horses quiet, to stop them being frightened, if you like to use that phrase, uh, I think it was the Lisbon Treaty right. to get yeah. the line. Um, a, 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 comp- a complicated landscape. Uh, listen, Declan, a fascinating conversation. I feel as if we only had half of it because any of the ones that we touch on, you could you could do a deep dive on, um, and your expertise is fascinating. Um, so for now, thanks a million. Perhaps we we'll talk again, but for now, thank you very much, Declan Power. Thank you, Connor.
So that's Declan Power. I hope you enjoyed the chat. It's a huge subject and we may find ways to come and look at it again. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like George Hook, Brian O'Donovan, Henry McKean, Geraldine Herbert and others. It's all there on SeniorTimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. Until next time, drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.